0: As we head into the holidays, we know there's one thing that all of us, no matter how different we are, can agree on. Holiday travel sucks. It doesn't matter how awesome the final destination is, how short the flight, or if you haven't seen your family and friends in decades. The minute you arrive at the airport, the first thought that goes through your head is something like, please, 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 let's just survive this day. And sure, airports are pretty awful and stressful, the food is bad, the flights are packed, everyone is cranky, but it's not like that airport itself has something against you. It's just some big bland municipal building. It's not evil.
1: That is, until you start looking into Denver International Airport, the main hub to legions of conspiracy theorists who tell you that it's not just some building... With its weird art, strange history, and layout, DIA is a stronghold for the New World Order, housing alien crafts, satanic rituals, and a time capsule that could bring about the end of days. Welcome to Mad Scientist's Hometown Horrors Holiday Edition! Today, we catch a flight to areas unknown as we dig into the stories that surround Denver International Airport.
2: Jake, roll the tape!
1: Are you, ex- you've already traveled, right? You've already been into an airport.
0: I hate it so much. I hate it so much.
1: <laughs> the food is so abysmal, I can't even stand it.
0: I've, so for my, for, for my day job, I travel all the time. And obviously during COVID, I haven't traveled that much, but we're starting to travel again in February.
1: Mm-mm-mm. And so this
0: last trip, actually, I didn't, t- I didn't, I wasn't in an airport, I actually drove which is slightly less terrible, but also still pretty, pretty terrible. It's just like, oh, my God, airports are.
1: They just bring out the best in everyone.
0: <laughs> if, listen, if you're going to get punched in the face by somebody as an adult, it's probably going to happen at an airport. It's
1: probably going the people to. People are just
0: they're mean. Everyone just fucking hates being there like Nobody wants Everyone's to be all keyed up. Yeah. No one wants to be at the airport. Everyone just wants to be where they're going. And they, we've made it such an impossible scenario. Like yesterday, some dude's gun went off in internet in Atlanta's airport, and they were just like, Yeah, he got away. His gun just went off. I have been through that airport. They wouldn't let me bring bottled water. <laughs> that that well, dude had a gun and they were just they like, just let him go. It's guy. crazy.
1: Oh, yeah. No, and I, I actually have just been flying in and out fairly frequently of Denver International Airport. And I can tell you, but first of all, that airport is ginormous and it just feels huge. And it, it's uh, Southwest has actually also just implemented almost this entirely automated way of, of self checking your own bag that they had just introduced when I got there. So, of course, it like breaks down repeatedly. When I'm there. So I'm like, well,
0: goodbye bag. See ya. Well, it's it's also airports are sort of weird because they are this. They're sort of gargant. They've become more than just like, okay. if you think about other transportation places or modes, yeah, (laughs) you think about stuff like a bus stop or even a bus terminal. Those are pretty simple. They're just, you know, you get you get in, you give your ticket to this, you know, to the person unfortunate enough to be working the till you sit down, you wait for the bus, the train, it gets in and you leave. Exactly. But airports are these sort of gargantuan buildings that have all these like seemingly secret passages and walkways and stuff. There's, you know, it's this hub. It's like a hive almost.
1: And yes, j- I was for, it's like a spiderweb, but a hive is a much better analogy. Yeah.
0: And for someone like me who doesn't really like big crowds of people and gets really anxious mm-hmm. just generally, mm-hmm. but also especially when traveling, mm-hmm. when around so many people and especially so many people who are ready to just murder anybody that says anything wrong to them. Airports are re- like really actually kind of a frightening place because, you know, it's. It's again, it it. It's the closest we get to like a Minotaur's layer in our <laughs> modern lives, outside of like going on one of those weird like you know wipeout game shows or whatever. It's the closest we get,
1: <laughs> which is next. That's the next episode. Yeah, we go on wipeout wipe next. Uh, yeah, that we would like. Yeah, that ooh, that would be good. Um, but I, the thing that kind of puzzles me the most, because I agree with you 100 on all of that, but is like what possesses people to believe this about this airport. There's so many conspiracy theories surrounding it. There's so much intrigue. And really, what drove Denver International Airport wasn't something as uh, nefarious as the New World Order or alien infrastructure, but that state's need to drive commerce and infrastructure to actually help their state survive. So it's capitalism, <laughs> which, again, you know, we can we we have debated in our past episodes about how how evil and nefarious that is. However, it doesn't really answer why people need to be, uh, to believe in conspiracy theories either. So we'll talk about that and we'll talk about sort of these ambitious plans that Colorado had for this airport and how those aspirations actually became a cautionary tale. But It's almost as weird as any of the conspiracy theories out there.
0: I'm super excited. So airports themselves are pretty weird. But why are we talking about this particular airport? So for those that haven't heard of this conspiracy theory ever before, I think my favorite thing on the conspiracies is actually from FlyDenver.com itself. So it's from the airport. It was released on yes. the Denver International Airport 25th anniversary, I guess. And so it's mm-hmm. just a PDF handout that says conspiracies. And so it says you may or may not have heard. Den's got some secrets since the airport opened in 95. Endless rumors and theories swirl around Denver International Airport. People say our underground tunnels lead to secret meeting facilities for the world's elite. Our blue horse is thought to be cursed. Some believe we're connected to the New World Order and the Freemasons. Some even say we're home to a colony of lizard people. Here's the full scoop on Den's Wildest Rumors, and then it just goes through again, it's a one-pager, and so these are the things it says, the New World Order built the airport and then it gives conspiracy and then reality. Mustang, a beautiful statue, is cursed. Den has extraterrestrial map coordinates. The gargoyles are sinister there's secret messages inscribed in the floor and den is very connected and not just to airline destinations which says that it's connected to cheyenne mountain and norad so it makes oh, yeah. a giant survival bunker for the uh what's the word for the end of the world this it's just can you imagine having to put out mm. like you just work in this airport and you've never heard of these conspiracies before. Maybe you start working mm-hmm. They're Like, listen,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. don't, can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and this was, this was something that like, again, that I, there's, there is actually a lot of information on, and there is this, this letter communication between the head of PR, or I think one of the heads of PR at the time and these conspiracy, um, and these conspiracy people that are demanding answers from them. And, um, it's pretty hysterical because at a certain point, like, again, like you were saying, if, so you come to work, uh, you know, and you're working in PR or marketing for, you know, for this major, for this major municipality and it's a great opportunity and they've just launched this new airport and there's this huge art project and cultural project and it's going to be really exciting. And then you have people demanding answers on the lizard people from you. (laughs) So it's like, I think at a certain point, You know, you almost push past being just tired of answering it to where it almost becomes like hysteria. Like, it becomes really funny.
0: It's a a real-life Parks and Recreation episode.
1: It it really, truly has that flavor to it. Like, if Ron Swanson was being like, yes, let me tell you about the lizard people. You know, like, (laughs) that is exactly what they've had to deal with. And they still have to deal with it. And I will say that the one thing that feels like it disables, and we'll go into this with conspiracy, but the one thing that feels like it disables the ability for conspiracy to grow is sort of co-opting it and making it funny. So when they were doing the most recent construction, all of their construction banners were like, are we building a special executive lounge for the lizard people? (laughs) Wait and find out. You know, it's sort of like they totally took away any of the... I don't know, like any of the sting or any of the the nefariousness, well, the you know, the the yeah, subterfuge cons- and are like, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. I am gonna say, okay. yeah, so you yeah,
0: conspiracy conspiracy breeds in secrecy, right? That's yes. that's where yes. people find conspiracy. So if they're just yes. like, this is a Cinnabon idiot, it's not a lizard people breeding station.
1: Or maybe it is, or and they love cinnamon. I don't know.
0: <laughs> like you know, are these are these anti pretzels or are these gray alien eggs? <laughs> you know, it it really it sting. really takes away the sting. But the but the thing is that it's it's history and everything else. Like if you look at it historically, all of the crazy crap people point to for these conspiracy theories kind of makes sense. So let's let's dig into the history first. So all right, to start off with. Well, How did this airport start? Give me me a little bit of background here, Marie.
1: So when construction started on Denver International, the airport really was in the middle of nowhere. It's in Adams County. And when it started, there was absolutely no other buildings, no homes, nothing around it. It was just flat plains. And the old airport that uh, it inevitably took the place of was actually really centrally located to Denver, only three miles from downtown. And Uh, Stapleton, the old airport, had actually been there um, since 1929. So everything was fine. People were using Stapleton. You could fly out of it from downtown until the event of airline deregulation. And I know at that at this point, we've probably lost the majority of our listeners. Uh, And they're like, oh, sweet. Maybe next they'll talk about taxes. Um, But this is important (laughs) because it really does. uh, it, It Shows one of the major changes that kind of helped foster these conspiracy theories. So, pri- prior to 1978, the federal government regulated airlines, and anything an airline had to do had to go through regulation. So, they had to seek approval for control over fares, they had to seek con- uh, you know, approval for routes. Even if you wanted to start a new airline, you had to go through the government for that. Now, when this one's listed, the commercial boom just hit and it was a free market. So, you, all of a sudden, um, a company could come in and uh, a new company could come into the market and introduce really, really low fares or increase the number of flights. So, now more Americans could fly more often for a lot less money. But, like with anything, the boom had a huge trade off uh, it meant more competition overall for all of the airlines.
2: So, and, and, older and, and- airlines.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm. less like, again, if people are competing to be the cheapest airline, you, you can imagine you probably want. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm old. Call me old fashioned, Marie. But if I'm <laughs> on an airplane, I want it to be like safe <laughs> and uh, well, oh, man, and have. I don't know. At least whatever a little controls states. as I'm as I'm speeding through the air. And you know what I mean? Hundreds of miles but per hour. That's a good
1: point. That's a good point. And not to get too uh too wonky or too political, but regulation does come with a certain amount of well, regulation, right? Like hey, we have to make sure that these things are fixed. Hey, we have to make sure that these fares make sense. Um, but again, like as you know when uh, When this was lifted, all of a sudden old airports had to accommodate and there was all this new complexity. Like, oh, my God, we have to like we have to keep up with these new airlines. They've got more gate space. We need more counter space. We need to ramp up at like key airports of which there were only a few. So if you can imagine, it's for uh, a lack of a prettier analogy, it's shoving 10 pounds of shit into a five pound bag. (laughs) Put shit into a bag. I know it's. You know what? I've been hanging out with my dad more, and that's a that's a that's that's a Colorado analogy. That's an old
0: West thing, Marie. I don't know. That's an old, that's an old West thing. Spending spending <laughs> too much time out there in the prairie. Oh, well, I don't know. Think about oh, this. Like it's it. like
1: your supply chain. All of a sudden, you've hit the bottleneck, right? Like, you've got all of these other people that are like, hey, we can do it cheaper, faster, and better. And we can fly you to Tampa for seven bucks. Hell, we'll get you drunk and fly you to Tampa. How about that? And everyone's Just like, slap you, to this,
0: slap you to this catapult and shoot you out there to Miami, idiot. Yeah.
1: That's exactly what we're doing. So, okay.
0: Do. So, deregulation leads to this huge boom in demand for airport space routes, everything, for everything having to do with airline travel.
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. And at that point, there just weren't enough airports to go around. Mm. Uh, So this shortage led to airports creating, um, kind of taking over a single airport and using it as their hub. And it really is sort of the same way that we fly today. So an airport would come in and sort of dominate a airport with as uh, as many flights, as many gates, and as many options as humanly possible to get travel in and out of. So if you think about it like it's a hub and maybe you're flying in from Seattle and you need to have a connecting flight to, say, New York. So you really want that hub to be somewhere in the middle of the United States so you're able to get as many flights in and out as humanly possible.
0: Which is interesting, though, because I think about stuff like, so Delta... Delta is the airline that I fly all the time because it's the one that my work gives me a discount for and I get lots of miles and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So for Delta, though, their hubs are out of like, I think it's Atlanta. Maybe Chicago is one, too. Chicago is like everyone's hub. Mm -hmm. I think Chicago is like United or American Airlines. But this hub, yeah, this hub and spoke strategy is really super duper common. So basically it's, you know, you go to an airport. It is... Basically, there's one airport where all your flights end up going out of. So if you fly anywhere on the East Coast, of the United States from anywhere else, you almost always end up getting routed to Denver International Airport because it is a hub city or not. Sorry, not yes. Denver. I'm an idiot. You get uh, to. Yes, yeah, so we'll say, OK, to Denver, baby. But also mm-hmm. like you will get routed to Atlanta if you're going to the East Coast.
1: Exactly. So and you try right. and have as many uh, strategic hubs as possible. Right. To to get the most maximum amount of flights in and out. So but at the time when this whole deregulation thing happened, there weren't airports, there weren't those massive hubs. And if there was an existing airport, it kind of got um, snapped up quickly. So all of a sudden, you know, the middle of the country sees this huge opportunity to become um, to become one of these hubs and to build an airport. So then the race is on, like, how do we build an airport and what's the best state to build an airport in? And really, when you look at the middle of the country of the states that it's optimal for were Utah, Kansas and Colorado.
0: Mm, Okay. so yeah, Yeah. yeah, big deal. Big deal. That's interesting. So and also the states that, again, states that had at that time, at least very, I mean, still today to this day, I'd say in some in some of these cases Fairly poor infrastructure development. We're not talking about places like, you know, again, and and by infrastructure development, I'm not crapping on your roads and bridges, Kansas. But, you know, what I mean is like if, you know, the number of major cities or major centers of population with lots of connecting roads for travel and rail connections and and then everything else to go to the airport in these areas at the time was pretty, pretty rough there were there weren't there wasn't a lot right. to it. And even in some
2: right. parts of, you know, of space.
0: Right. And even today, in some parts of Utah, Kansas or Colorado, right in the middle of the country, the amount of infrastructure we've put in to help make those areas more, you know, uh, more traversable, s- traversable, I guess is what I'd say. You know, there hasn't been a whole lot of it. So Denver. Post regulation, Denver. It ended up becoming the sixth busiest airport in the United States.
1: And most of that
0: comes from connecting flyers.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's the old airport. So that was Stapleton. That was the one that was only, you know, just a stone's throw from downtown. Right.
0: So you have these different parts of the country now fighting to become those hub areas, right? Because it's going to bring in lots of tax revenue. It's going to bring in lots of money. It's going to bring in lots of business. It's all good, you'd think. So Denver, though, after the regulation, the Stapleton Airport climbed to be the sixth busiest airport in the United States. And most of that comes from connecting flyers. So basically, uh, most of the airport traffic, at least half of it at that time, actually, was just passing through. So these are people, again, you fly in, you get a slice of I was going to say a slice of pizza. But in Colorado, I'd imagine you are probably getting something like maybe a slice of pie or something. But, you know, you're passing through. You're not staying Mm -hmm. in the area for a long time. The old airport there, Stapleton, was reliable, functional. Basically, there's nothing wrong with it. But the state representatives in Colorado realized this deregulation really represented an opportunity for them. And again, not just opportunity, right, but money, real serious money. And the person who saw this potential most clearly than others was Frederico Pena, Denver's mayor elected to office in 1983. Pena's first term a year into it, Colorado fell into a major recession. So the unemployment rate was two points above the national average. There was a 30% vacancy rate in downtown Denver in terms of office space, and every sector of the economy imploded. Basically, the city's economy had gone bust with the oil industry, which was a big part of the economy. And they thought, well, okay, if the oil industry isn't going to be doing it, we'll do it with air travel. Although, frankly, substituting something that was once based on oil for something that instead is based on gasoline seems pretty, pretty dumb. But oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm not a mayor. I don't know. It's the 80s. It's the 80s. That's true. Everyone's hopped up on cocaine. So Pena persuaded local politicians that they needed to act. He said we had to invest. We had Republicans, Democrats and independents coming together to get the airport approved, financed and built. And that was a quote from Pena. And actually, other cities started to kind of bite at the bit a little bit here, too. So Salt Lake City's mayor, Palmer DePolis, said the long haul flyers could make connections at his city's airport instead if Denver could not take the lead. He said, quote, we'd like to fill that gap if Denver doesn't take the lead and build a new airport.
1: Yeah. So you can see sort of the gold rush to build a new airport and to get all this revenue for your state is on. Uh, and. The leaders, Colorado leaders and Colorado government are definitely starting to feel the pressure of, you know, we've got to somehow build this new airport and get this money and get this travel and kind of situate ourselves as the hub for whatever airline. However, they had a really pretty good number six airport in the United States, right? They had Stapleton. So how do you go about, you can't have two airports. So you have to kind of have a blood sacrifice, if you will, since we're talking conspiracy and uh, sacrifice one of the airports to build the new one. And so they had to start situating and communicating out that Stapleton wasn't just old. It wasn't just an old airport around since 1929. Uh, it's completely antiquated, uh, you know, and so they started to socialize Messaging around. Well, it has you know all but one airport that has to be shut down in 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 snow and bad weather. The only way that we could expand is onto uh, potentially poisonous, toxic Rocky Flats arsenal, which again, excellent. You know, if you want a scare tactic for for your voting public, (laughs) you know, I think saying, you know, uh, going into a toxic. The only way we can do this is to release toxic gas into our into our children's lungs is a pretty good that's a pretty good selling point and this place um, and only was,
0: has one Cinnabon you mean to tell
1: me an airport only with has one, one Cinnabon, Cinnabon
0: is, is, is modern is gonna operate now there's no way
1: I mean come on people come on um and it was just too close to the to densely populated downtown and there was just too many noise complaints right if we if we try and put in more planes it's just gonna make more noise no you, you, you know this what stops point,
0: you know what stops noise complaints Marie? Uh, a uh, buttload of new construction.
1: Uh, but <laughs> you know, I I can't help but think that you're right, Chris. As long as it's out. But again, like remember the place, you know, and this there there they're, you know, while they're while they're digging the grave for uh for Stapleton, they're shopping around for, you know, where are we going to put our new trophy, our new trophy airport? And they're like, "Oh, way out in the way out in the hills and and far away from everyone in Adams County. But, I mean, bear in mind, Stapleton was lucrative. It was making a profit of $50 million to $80 million a year. Oh, my God. But, you know, which is not bad. Again, for something for—I I think if you look at it situationally, and I know that this is, again, getting a little wonky, but that's a good amount of money for something that is not broke, don't fix it kind of thing, right? Like $80 million a year is not bad. Um, But you know what? They took it to the vote. They got it. They got the uh, the chance to take it to the vote. And because of their efforts, because of, again, sort of their lobbying of the uh, people of Colorado, it was approved by 65 percent of Denver voters in 1989. And um, it's easy to say that 65 percent is a pretty good margin to get something to pass. Like you're not going to have a lot of people agree on a lot of things.
0: No, 65% is amazing. I mean, I guess it's the I mean, it was eight, 1989. That's crazy. Yeah. 65% that is of the, I mean, crazy. I guess the 90s are a little bit more peaceful, but oh my god. All right, we're going to dig right back into this
2: after our break. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.
0: Denver International Airport. It goes so, so first off, we have all of this again, conspiracy breeds in secrecy.
2: Right. And
0: it also breeds in places where it looks like like stuff doesn't make sense. Like, you know, you're making your so you have this great airport that was fine and making loads of money, and now you're making another one. And people don't want to just take the explanation and like, well, yeah, government loves to, uh, you know, spend money and be corrupt and everything else. Mm -hmm. People need it to make sense. There has to be something besides just basic human evil and greed to explain this. Now, Denver International Airport becomes a huge project. So, yes, it goes on to become seven times larger than the size of the original Stapleton Airport. That makes it twice the size of Manhattan, which is crazy for a place that most people are just going through. Exactly. (laughs) They're like they're coming in and they're just leaving.
1: Yes, yes. And this is the whole municipality. Like, this is the whole this isn't just the airport itself, but it's it is the airport. The, the the square footage of the actual what it takes to run the airport yes
0: yeah it it becomes the second largest public works project in the entire world it's second only to the channel which links England and France and by land area it becomes the largest US airport and the third largest in the world so third largest in the world which isn't ins-
1: that's nuts
0: again for an airport that was already kind of working okay it it you know they they expanded they really expanded it ends up to, interestingly enough, in the construction, they move 110 million cubic yards of earth. That is one third of the amount of earth that was moved to build the Panama Canal.
1: Yeah, and I think, again, you're just kind of getting, you know, they they refer to it as epic. This was an epic, uh, an epic uh, scope and an epic everything and I think that that really when you start to dig into those details you realize it was there was nothing short of that
0: they they thought they thought really that this was going to be the engine for their economy they thought this was what yeah. this is what the future yeah. of Denver and all and the state of Colorado really was going to be based on so
1: yeah we were st- we we're talking about sort of the evils of and greed but it was I do think you know, to <clears throat> to kind of I don't want to soften, you know, soften our our stance on on capitalism too much. But to say that like this, this did represent opportunity, legit opportunity. Oh, absolutely. For, for Colorado and for Colorado infrastructure and for supporting Colorado infrastructure, which, you know, I, I think we can all agree is a necessity. Absolutely. To the, but- scope, to the scope that they decided to take it and sort of the bells and whistles that they decided to go with. That's debatable. Yeah, maybe
0: maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit of an overestimation. So maybe, maybe Denver, the city of Denver hires architect uh, August Perez of New Orleans, who is a personal friend of the mayor's. And so the idea here behind the architecture was this to be a, a 19th century style train station with huge riveted beams, massive skylights. And just to look really like if you're envisioning in your head sort of you know what is uh, uh, again what is like the train station that an oil baron gets -hmm. off his private car at this is what they want you to think of you know
1: which i think is a very perfect take on it and again not highly practical no right because you're like okay huge riveted beam massive skylights Ah.
0: Okay. No. Guys, yeah. It's again, a little bit of extra mm-hmm. stuff here. And so they end up. So that's the architect. They end up getting um the firm Fentress Bradburn to be the real production architect for the project. So the way this works is basically you have the architect who designs things and then the, the production firm who actually goes on and, and has to build the damn thing. Mm-hmm. And so they have to, like, take that design. They have to make the blueprints. They have to oversee the construction. They're really the ones that get it done. And they're also unfortunately for them the people who have to who have to decide if this can be done on budget and on time.
1: Yeah again it's the 10 pounds of shit into the five pound bag analogy.
0: Exactly. And so what this construction firm decided was you, you we're trying to eat way too much shit here can't do it right <laughs> so the the train station example or the idea behind the train station thing it overshot budget by 54 million dollars marie do you know how many little pumps that is
1: i can only imagine that it's 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 a handful it's a handful of little pumps It's like 18 little pumps crazy oh my, it's almost two handfuls so but that's a lot of money to be over budget immediately it's a like crazy they haven't even done anything else they haven't broken ground that's a, a lot of crazy money.
0: amounts of over budget. They they end up. So, again, uh, well, well, here's the thing, though, right? This architect himself cost the city. A huge amount of money.
1: Yes. So yes. if you think about even though it, he right? was a friend of the mayor's like, I'm sure exactly. he even got the friend of mayor's, you know, discount.
0: Yeah. So, all right. All right. Before anything is even built, This. This airport project is already looking like it's probably not going to happen exactly the way they thought. So the city ended up having to buy out Perez, the architect, for six million dollars, and the the construction architecture firm was asked to basically, okay, well, listen, you redesign it. Then if that's not what's going to happen,
1: and so they it's a total drop back and punt.
0: Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> like, all right, so we can't we can't make this night. You know.
1: The, I don't even know it's how it's to not gonna describe it. barons. It's, it's not going to be the Robber uh train station. So, wow, what you got? Yeah. You know, what kind of doodles can you come up with that are going to like get well, us back on schedule? Because be at this point, time's wasting. Yeah, to be fair.
0: Right. So this other this other company did end up making something really cool. So they built yes. they, they basically decided on the design. They thought they wanted it to be something like an encampment of Native Americans on a bluff. So the architecture wanted to acknowledge the original inhabitants of the area and be sympathetic to the regional environment. This is a quote actually from the main architect. But the basic idea here was they wanted to create a central terminal. Now it's known as the Japenson or the Japesson terminal. And they wanted that to be a kind of the center point of this sort of community of other terminals. That would come together. And again, from far away, they wanted you to be thinking of or looking at it as a a kind of a again, what you what in your mind, what you see in your mind's eye when you think about you're a cowboy going along the range and there is a encampment of uh, Native Americans, right? The original inhabitants of the land. Bear in mind, this is
1: the 1990s we haven't really begun to socialize the idea of reappropriation. Right. And we, so (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. We understand this is not exactly the most acceptable viewpoint today. And um, yeah, I'm sure the, I'm sure the native Americans who the land was taken from to build this were very, very thrilled that uh, they wanted to make it look like a teepee. So I know. Interestingly (laughs) enough, the terminal itself, they they use fabric on it. It's woven fiberglass that's coated then in Teflon. So that's to make it waterproof and everything else. So uh, the design overall was in budget and it was on time. And so it was immediately received the stamp of approval from the mayor. However. They decided, all right. Maybe comparing it to the teepees of Native Americans is a little bit offensive. So instead, we're going to say it's built to represent the mountain peaks of the Rockies. Issue with that is they already had all these interviews where they said it was the teepees. So that doesn't really work.
1: Again, I I think that that is one of the beautiful things about about this story is like the restructuring, the, the restructuring of the narrative. Right. Like. Oh, Stapleton's antiquated. It's uh, you know, it's a it's a dinosaur. No, 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 no. We this is these are the Rocky Mountains. This is the front range you're looking at. We would never do something so offensive.
0: Except except we would. So <laughs>
1: But look over here. Bright. But, but, and shiny. Wait, yeah. Don't
0: don't look at the man behind the behind the yeah, So <laughs> the ultimately the uh, so everything was approved, right? We're all good to go. It starts being constructed in September of 1989. Initially, the cost estimates are around two point eight or two point oh eight billion dollars. That's the original estimate. But again, ultimately, we can look back at history and say, well, the airport, though, didn't board its first passenger until February of 95. (laughs) Hmm. So it had four major delays. It took six years to build. And ultimately, the real construction cost was about $3 billion. So about a billion dollars over original estimate. Which if you think back to when we said that they didn't want to go for something that was going to be $54 million, uh, over budget, pretty f- <laughs> or $54 million over budget, I should say. Pretty funny that it ended up costing them $3 billion, uh, or $1 billion
1: more. A billion dollars. That seems like, again, my naivete might be showing, but it seems like a lot. It fits a little bit well, so what, a lot. Well, so
0: what 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 ended up happening was they they just took cr- they just took crazy decisions. They just chose to do stuff that again, like and this is where the conspiracy comes in is it's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, oh, we're going to build a giant like looks like a fire breathing demon horse statue at the, at the entrance. (laughs) Like why you're already a billion dollars over budget. Why are you choosing to do that, dude?
1: We're going to get into like why they went with the weird art as well. And I think that it is, I think the point that you hit on is, is really again, like this need to, you know, the government's need, um, the leadership's need to kind of drive infrastructure, commerce, is well-meaning, but then sort of hubris brings it in a million dollars and six years later. So, I mean, you have all of this time to have conspiracies just fester about it, right? Like, that's a long time to be waiting for something. And I think as soon as you start to add in some of the other stuff like the weird art that can really begin to add to the whole conspiracy. So we're getting into the weird art. And really, the thing to remember is like Denver International Airport was the first airport in America to feature art, to really feature art and to make it a big deal. And so that's a big deal. Like that was happening again in in uh, when, when they put it in place and started to put it into construction in the early 90s, but in 1988, Pena made an executive order that directed one percent of any capital improvement project over a million dollars undertaken by the city to set aside an inclusion for art. Which and that which, became known, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's which amazing. is not
0: a terrible. I, I actually kind of support that. I think that's kind of a cool idea.
1: I think it's a very important idea because it's saying, hey, if you're if you are coming in and you're building this huge capital, you know, this ginormous. Cement building. You also need to do something to appreciate uh, to appreciate the arts, and any one percent of that capital improvement has to go towards that, and that became the public arts program, and it was its was law. Uh, and to kind of understand and consider, <clears throat> like what what does that art look like? How do we define it that that we're making people spend money on? He established what he called a, a blue ribbon committee to consider public art as well as architecture, sort of the aesthetics and the design, especially for the airport. So they had a budget, they started off with a budget of exceeding $7 million. And it uh, the, the program there at the airport grew into the single largest facility art program in the nation. Damn. So again, I know at the time, this is a massive deal. Like this is, this airport is, you know, not only is it going to be being built, but it's going to be built with seven million dollars worth of art, which, again, when you think about an airport now, that's a lot more common. I think that that's something that other airports, both internationally and in the United States, have adapted more. But really, at the time, that's that was that was just that was insane. Um, but it was also very I think it was very welcomed. Um so his blue ribbon, blue ribbon Committee oversaw the commission of all of his artwork, and they had one uniting theme um, for what they had to look for and kind of how to qualify the art, and they called it Journey, right? So it's the idea of Journey, which is very, very fitting, right, for an airport. Yeah, but still pretty nebulous. It's
0: like, I want to right. make, make my theme called
2: a Vision,
1: be, that mean, i'll dude? tell you what if you can if you can gather up seven million bucks you're gonna have people coming to you with like let me tell you about my installation for vision
0: yeah yeah I mean, okay yeah, i get it but you it's know, just a it's weird like, i get it it's an airport journey sure. yeah okay it's fine on the sure. nose a little bit it's whatever also,
1: it's it's you know yes and you can argue you know as a humanities major i could argue well it's also the journey of 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 the history of Colorado. Um, it could be the journey of the people that, you know, our ancestry, yada, yada, yada. So the committee, these group of people had to be conscientious to consider all of the cultural components for the art pieces given, mm-hmm. right? So they couldn't really be overtly offensive or too obscene, quote unquote, or anything like that. It had to be appropriate. Um, and they really, this group of people were local business leaders and artists, and probably the most well-known of them was a man by the name of Charles Ansbacher. So Charles Ansbacher himself is a fascinating, fascinating character. He He was born in Providence, 1942, and he loved music. And this love of music was encouraged early on by his parents, who were both noted alderman psychologists, Dr. Heinz Ludwig and Rowena Ansbacher. So he had, he had these, he had shrinks for parents (laughs) and he loved music. Um, But the interesting thing about Alderman psychology is it focuses on the identity of uh, identifying the origin of a patient's feeling of inferiority and how they sense and how this sense of this inferiority can lead to rejecting reality as common sense.
0: So a total, total healthy family dynamic.
1: Well, what was, the, yeah. Well, yes. So, I mean, if you can imagine, if you can imagine, I mean, like, it's hard to imagine, like, we, when we think about our parents, it's hard enough. But his parents were grounded in diagnosing what could also be described as a conspiratorial mindset.
0: Right. What they're talking about is kind of the common, like, the common, um, you know, skeptical argument or kind of the, I would say, a straw man generally of, you know, well, people believe in conspiracy theories because they feel inferior about themselves or they need something yes. to believe in or whatever.
1: And I'm going to reject, I'm going to reject reality that's good for me and kind of common sense for something that is false. And so how do you go about, uh, how do you go about kind of regrounding someone? Sure. And, you know, and, and, and um, bringing them back to, to something that makes more sense. So right. Heinz, Ons- hmm. Heinz Onsbacher, his father, um, served in World War II, and he served with the Allies Psychological Warfare Division. So if you want to talk about like a lot of the conspiracy theories that we'll get into that later kind of swirl around Charles Onsbacher, his son, I mean, you hear the Psychological Warfare Division and you immediately are like, huh, that's interesting. But he had a real, he actually had a very interesting role in that he was responsible for writing the pamphlets that were dropped in war zones to try and persuade German soldiers to defect or surrender. Huh. Yeah. So this led to him writing a book in 1948 um, on the attitudes of German prisoners of war, a study of the dynamics of National Socialism Fellowship. And the study was basically, you know, he um, it was uh, covering the time that he obtained questionnaires administered to these German prisoners of war who had been in captivity for anywhere from like two days, uh, sorry, four days to two weeks. And these questions were designed for various purposes. Like some of them were to try and get estimates of the troop movement, the troop morale, um, you know, to clarify problems around the propaganda uh, and to appraise the effectiveness of how, uh, how effective were these combat leaflets and other propaganda material. But his, his real responsibility was to try and break the German soldiers from national socialism.
0: So kind of a, kind of an early, like almost an early, um, almost an early decult or cult deprogrammer yes in some ways fascinating yeah really really interesting
1: and it's like again like national socialism dogmatic persuasive you know and his job was not to just get them to defect but to understand how they were to get to like how did they convince themselves of their beliefs in the first place and then the biggest thing uh from, from my research that he was really trying to understand was to get them to, te- to teach them empathy, right? To teach them the empathy for other people. So like his parents, Charles was dedicated to unifying people in his own way through a shared love of music. Uh, he went on to become the Colorado Springs Symphony Director. He worked tirelessly to, you know, to advocate and push budget issues for the local arts. He took the Colorado Springs Orchestra from a part-time group with some piddly budget to a year-round professional orchestra with a budget of two million dollars. Dang. Um, yeah. So I mean, again, he, you know, and I, going into him again, I would encourage our listeners to kind of, whenever they hear outside of our outside of our podcast, whenever they hear sort of these conspiracy rumors around this, to research what this man did with his life because it is really remarkable, and don't get a chance to go into all of it here, but it is. It's truly moving and very remarkable. He went, um, just as a quick side note, he went to war-torn countries to uh, help them with their music. So he, would, he went to um, Sarajevo and um, conducted the Sarajevo Orchestra. Even when they didn't have electricity, even when they were like in war-torn places, he would go in and, and, and try and bring people together through their love of music.
0: Yeah, uh, so pretty, now- a pretty a pretty inspiring person and a pretty yeah. pretty really interesting parental research. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we talk about again, but this is where now the the links the the web of conspiracy starts to grow. Right? You mean mm-hmm. to tell me that this guy with this specific kind of mental control over people <laughs> worldview. <laughs>
1: he mm-hmm. came from yeah
0: whose, whose yeah, parents like, helped the the government stop the germans who again are kind of a in especially in conspiracy theory there's always a bit of a tinge of like pro not pro nazi necessarily but pro pro right wing yeah there's a view that yes, you know the well, government a, itself a distrust like trust of the arts right it's not it's well mm-hmm. not even just distrust of the arts because it's it's not really pro fascism it's anti-socialism
1: yes and
0: that and socialism i think for a lot of people tends to have a connotation of like controlling the thoughts of other people right stamping out the bad thoughts you know having good thoughts having good thinking group thinking whatever that's what this guy's dad worked on
1: Uh, yeah yeah super interesting I think that, yeah, like I said, he's he's totally worth looking into and talking to more. But this so this is the individual that Pena sort of entrusted with DIA and would head the group that would oversee the art that was going to be purchased um, and commissioned for the airport. I'm
0: starting to think there's a damn conspiracy theory here, Marie. We're not. You haven't convinced (laughs) me at all. All right, so let's let's talk about some yeah, of the we've art. We've gotten thing.
1: to the chemtrails, so well, let's get to the art itself. Which, again, they've so just in thinking about art, like again, even though the main mission of this commission, this this commission that is uh, looking to to find the art, is not to do anything incredibly offensive or incredibly controversial. It's subjective. All art is subjective. So no matter what's going to happen, you're going to you're going to offend a group of people with 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 your ideas. But this this one in particular, I can kind of see where I can kind of see where the conspiracies conspiracy theory is going with it. So just outside of the main entrance to Denver Airport in the median of Peña Boulevard stands the first piece, especially commissioned for the airport. It's called Blue Mustang, um, and it was done by artist uh, Louise Jimenez. Now, Blue Mustang is 32 feet tall and he is exactly that it's an electric blue horse reared up on its hind legs with glowing neon red eyes now there is absolutely nothing around this statue right there's nothing even close so the size and proximity it's it's difficult to do it justice because it's truly terrifying it's like basically you come out of nowhere and there is this Ginormous blue horse with glowing red eyes.
0: <laughs> there, there is something so funny to me about this group of like erudite artists in a room together, deciding on what art to add on, on their blue ribbon panel, and having someone stand up and be like, "Let's make a big ass horse." <laughs> oh <my laughs> and then we're that all that just being like, so "Agreed. Yes. Oh, I, like, see, I see like, what he means there. Yes. Oh, the, oh, the horse represents yeah, so, so much to me." It's a big-ass yes. horse.
1: Well, yes, but Jimenez wanted Blue Mustang to pay tribute to the country's historic relationship with the horse. Okay, but it's like... Is a big thing in Colorado.
0: All right, but it's and like it's like the Old West equivalent. It's, it's like the Old West... It, it's like if uh, in Staten Island they decided to make a big statue of, like, you know of of, uh, a naked vampire woman. Like, it's like, it's, (laughs) it's like, oh, okay. Is that what Staten Island is? No, I'm sorry. It's like the, it's just such a. I
1: would go to see that.
0: It's such a, uh, it's like, you know, with tattoos. Like, it's just, it's such bad. I feel like the giant horse statue is such stupid bad taste. To be
1: fair, now, to be fair, remember, the commission of it doesn't necessarily mean that they have an entire like, they, they have control over, it, right? They're, they're bringing these artists on. the Jimenez especially was gave some description to it, and the original, the original position of the Mustang was different than where it was now. It was moved. So originally it was going to frame downtown Denver, Pike's Peak and the Mountains. and it would have been accessible to people. so it would have been sort of more in proximity to other. Buildings and people would be able to approach it and to look at it, um, you know, if, if they chose to. Not that that necessarily diminishes the uh, terrifying nature, but it sort of puts it, it gives it a better or maybe more relatable context. But because of um, because of the airport layout, they decided that they had to move it. So they were like, OK, let's just let's just put it here. So yeah, so it, it's terrifying, but it also signified a huge accomplishment for Jimenez, who was an artist that was now creating like the one of the first pieces at this new airport with this new mentality and it was going to leave his mark in the art world. So as an artist, you know who's selling his art, who's trying to become more well- known and who's trying to establish himself, this was a huge opportunity. but it also, is a huge responsibility, and he said in subsequent interviews that such a tremendous condition, um, you know, was was really taxing. And he was a man who was getting up there in age. To be honest, he uh, was older, and he was also even blind in one of in his left eye. Um, but again, like this is a huge this is a huge opportunity. He's sort of you know now committed to it. Um, But he started to miss the timelines for completion. So the city of Denver ultimately filed a lawsuit against him for the $165,000 that they had paid up front. But they said, hey, we'll we'll drop that lawsuit if the sculpture would be finished by the end of the year. But he still didn't get it completed. So again, here's this old here's this old man, he's blind in one eye. He has he he's seeing his legacy as an artist, you know, coming to a close with his age. He has this opportunity to 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 you know, to make his work legendary and to outlive him and to out, you know, and which is sort of again sort of the inspiration of, you know, of artists, I want to create something that's going to be for future generations. So but then 2006, while completing Mustang, an unsecured piece of the 9,000 pound sculpture fell on him, killing him. So this is again, this is where you can kind of understand where the conspiracy took place. Like, well, this is this is fodder. This is excellent fodder for conspiracy people. So Jimenez was by himself in the studio rushing to finish. It was nearly completed. He was using a rope to hoist a section of the sculpture into place so it could be welded because again, all metal. The hoist broke. The piece fell on the 66-year-old pinning him to the ground slicing an artery in his leg and he died on his studio floor.
0: Oh my god!
1: Right. That's crazy. So, 2007, the almost finished Mustang finally, finally completed, um, finally completed and installed. It now has a value that has doubled and then tripled to close to $2 million. So Blue Mustang was installed two years later after Jimenez's death. The city ended up paying $650,000, more than double what they originally intended. But many, you know, again, many, many in the art community, um, praised the statue as a crowning achievement um, and being sort of this the the pinnacle of his work since he had since especially since he had um, died completing it and Michael Hancock the then president of the Denver City Council quite aptly prophesied it will forever in, it will forever incite dialogue and oh yeah <laughs> Oh, it has my friends blue mustang immediately took some backlash people say it looked and i quote apocalyptic devilish coupled with the untimely death of the artist blue mustang took on the identified cursed object uh, and he was given the moniker of blucifer which is actually one of my favorite you know nicknames for, <laughs> it's pretty cool, if you're gonna pretty have cool a cursed nickname. object blucifer is nice that's pretty good so detractors said it you know it's possessed it's horrible it's disturbing demon horse blue stallion of death uh in 2008 uh letters to the rocky mountain news said and i quote it looks like it wants to trample you destroy you uh a giant statue a giant a statue of a giant male horse electric eyed, cobalt blue and anonymous and anatomically correct was installed uh on february 2008 um and it's freaking out more than a few people and then they had even some haikus come in, which is my favorite. Spooky blue flame steed greets us with heinous anus. This is art or shit.
0: It is. It is. <gasps> I mean, OK, when they say it's anatomically correct, they mean it. It is. You see the full butthole. You see the you see the you see his fruit and veg. It's all there for everybody to see. It's pretty It's pretty hilarious that they it's pretty hilarious The uh, one of the things that I think is sort of if you if you look at any of Jimenez's other art. That's his that's just kind of his style is doing stuff that like looks like it came out of straight out of hell. Like he's got one of his one of his one of his that I really like is called Man on Fire. (laughs) it's literally a guy like a flame he did a similar out he's done a similar other outdoor art it's always of giant weird blue animals he's got one called uh los lagartos which is the alligators which is this like it's just like four alligators like chomping and whatever he's he's done all of his horses look like blucifer they're these like blue veiny terrifying things It's just we it's just weird. I like it, but it's weird. Like if you if you haven't seen it. Nothing we say to you, listener, if you haven't seen it before, nothing we say to you will. (laughs) Give you the right impression. This horse, it is blue. It is like veiny it looks almost skeletal like it's a horse from a nightmare it really is i don't understand why they thought this was a good idea
1: yeah so i mean and something that's that like something that that's is that controversial immediately so did they tear it down
0: so all right so in early 2009 a local developer in the area rachel halton actually made a facebook page called dia's heinous blue mustang has got to go It got thousands of members very quickly, got a front page story in The Wall Street Journal, another major piece in The New York Times. It was all over the place. It's now defunct, though. And ultimately, uh, the DIA, so the Denver International Airport, conducted a public art survey in 2011 um, to talk for the next round of art acquisitions. And so from those results, uh, artist Matt Shasansky. said that he didn't have many calls today to remove the piece. There's discussion going on. And so 50% of people seem to love it. 50% seem to hate it. But the survey found that the Mustang is the best known piece of art at DIA. It's become really a cultural touch point and a national one at that. So because of that, they're not going to, I don't think they're ever going to get rid of it. Um, You know, so Patty Ortiz, who is the uh, one of the people working there, says, quote, I've always loved this work. And I think a lot of times it can be misunderstood because it's kind of fierce in a way and not easy to look at. But it's not meant to be easy. It's supposed to challenge and make them think, end quote. What I like about that with art is. And we can get into this maybe on an episode about art. What I like about it is. If someone doesn't like something, you can just say, well, it's not supposed to be liked. It's supposed to be challenging. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. So it's it's not going down. It's never going down. In the span of five short years, the statue has gone from absolutely cursed, absolutely beloved. It's become a symbol of Denver. It's become thought, you know, it's thought to be like this badass symbol of the area. and And people really like it, you know, so... This is one um, from Chandler Romeo, an artist who's on the current committee says, I love the Mustang. And the reason I love it is because it doesn't matter who you're talking to, where you are. People will react. Everyone will talk about the Mustang. To my mind, that's fantastic. Either they hate it or love it, but it evokes a response. And that really, I think, is probably the value. If art is supposed to do anything, it is supposed to get people up in arms. It's supposed to make you think or act or or feel something and even if the thing you feel is absolute loathing and fear i guess that's a good thing so all right the giant you know horse with the butt and the and the fruit and veg and everything else that's that's one other thing there's also other works of art displayed at the terminal so one of them is what's been known on the internet now is just the mural. But the mural is actually known as Children of the World Dream of Peace, and it's by Leo Tanguma. The mural measures 11 by 25 feet. And interestingly enough, so if you look at any of the work by Tanguma, the all of his works sort of show the struggle for dignity, justice, self-determination, and human rights. Now, this mural is pretty intense. And so the way that the airport describes it is... Um, it's showing the artist's desire to abolish violence in society. So again, the mural is supposed to show here kind of war and then peace, right? So peace winning over war. But in the sections that depict war, kind of intense. So the first two panels show an armed military figure in a gas mask wearing like this spooky hat, looks like a you know like a stormtrooper with a gun, with a sword You know, there's women crying and children sleeping, look like they're dead and everything else. It's pretty crazy. So uh, the figure itself has been described as looking like a World War II Nazi officer. And I got to say, yeah, pretty on point there. It's definitely what it looks like. And again, it just shows like ruined buildings, dead or dying children, mothers grieving with dead infants still in their arms. It's super intense for like trying to find an airport bathroom. The then next panel shows the soldier vanquished at the bottom with children joyously standing over him, dressed in all of their national costumes, holding swords wrapped in their nation's flags over their shoulders. And so the swords are then, uh, the swords are then basically like turning around uh, this rainbow above the kids' heads. So it's a very, very interesting, like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's Even that part it's is pretty, difficult. it's pretty weird. It's like it's
1: difficult to look at, right? Yeah, and I pretty, think like, go ahead, it's difficult. It's difficult to look at it's sort of like Lucifer. And I think, um, again, situationally, if you were at a gallery or at a museum and you saw this, you would have a much different reaction than if you were on your way to baggage claim. Right, right? yes. So contextually, this art is, is having a different effect on you just because of where you are, not because, it's, because of its content. I mean, again, like, its content is, I think, is really kind of uh, aggressive. But like I was saying, if you, if, if, if you were somewhere else that might not come across the way it does at, at an airport...
0: It's it's really interesting. And I mean, I think it's definitely worth if you haven't ever seen it, listeners, it's definitely worth taking a look at because it is sort of an interesting piece of art. I would say it's an interesting mural and everything else, but it's super duper trippy. Like, again, it's showing like. Yeah, it's just very, very weird. It's very, very strange. And And so big. That's
1: the other thing about a lot of this art.
0: Yeah, it's it's also huge. So, in uh, in an article I actually published about the creation of the piece, it says that in in uh, when he was making it, a van full of conspiracy theorists pull up to his house and demanded answers. The artist said that they weren't really hostile, but they asked him loads of questions, and he tried to talk about what the mural was supposed to be meaning. Right, so the first part is about the environment and the ways that humans destroy nature and themselves through genocide. The second part is about humanity coming together to rehab nature and to revive their own compassion. It's interesting, but he goes on to say that conspiracy theorists interpret his works in the most naive way. But I think that that's kind of a him problem and not a viewer problem. Right. Like, again, if you're making art and people are like, holy shit, this feels really gross and evil. And you're like, no, 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 you just don't get it. That seems like a you problem.
1: Uh, Right. Well, I so I would argue that it is subjective. And if you decide as a conspiracy theorist to look at it and read it in one way and uh, someone else looks at it and views it in a different way, then that's the nature of art. So the artist, uh, Taguma can say, but yeah, that is the most naive way. That's not my intent. That's still what they interpret, but that's not my intent. So with any of these things, it's like, well, I am bringing my own, um, subjective knowledge and experience to this painting and that's, or to this mural, to this giant blue horse, And how I interpret it and how I react to it and how I feel about it is going to be based largely on that, on me, the viewer. So that's like, again, and I think that that's sort of the nature of art. And what's to me so crazy is like, you would normally have these sort of interactions and experiences at a museum or at a gallery, right? You would normally have a sort of a known space to have it. But for like one of the first times in you know in american history you're having it at a in a very public place while your mind is on catching a connecting flight or the fact that you have to find a bathroom or that you know united has lost your luggage or whatever right so it's sort of like it's jarring just by the nature of of having that that context be that different it's that much more of a separation from how you're supposed to how you think you should be experiencing it does that make
0: sense yeah absolutely well what's what's really interesting too is that so the again we talked about we talked a little bit about like the way that the art is meant to be viewed and everything else and mm-hmm. th- th- I, I don't think it's not i'm not even making it clear enough i think to to listeners it's two giant murals they are spaced apart from each other <laughs> So it looks like one yes. mural shows and they're like
1: right to left. Exactly. So, so it's, it's not even the way that you normally, normally
0: view yeah. something. Yeah. We're used to in the West, yeah. at least viewing yeah. things yeah. as a storyline from going from left to right. Right. That's where you read things. But here it's meant to be viewed from right to left. But the issue or kind of the weird thing is they're They're really. They're really weird. It's it's by baggage claim. It goes between the atrium, like the main area, and then baggage claim. So it's something, Mm -hmm. too, that like, again, everyone is going to see and you're seeing it as you're leaving this airport. And it's just really weird. So The way the way that our minds read it is it shows someone going from the world at peace with all the nations together on the left. And then you go to the right, which in our brain says that's the way that time flows is the way that a story flows. And then you see this, like, Nazi stormtrooper gas mask dude killing everybody and the world being in in genocidal destruction. It does not read that way at all. Like, I don't know. It's very weird. And it's like, it's right. like right in between it is like a tornado shelter, which is very funny. Like, you know, at airports, there's, you know, bathrooms are considered tornado shelters. It's super spooky and weird and very strange. And just, again, Very, very interesting. Now, here's the thing, though. What the muralist says is, is he says this quote. So he says, there's a lesson that the lesson here with the mural is that someday the nations of the world will stop war and so on. will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning forks. That's taken from how I was brought up as a Mexican uh, in the Mexican Revolution. That's really interesting, and I think it's a good story. But again, a little bit of editing. A little bit of editing could have helped. If this mural was from the right to the left, I think it would have been a little bit clearer. You know, anyways, very, very interesting stuff. So, Marie, next episode, what are we getting into?
1: Okay, so, you know, again, I think if if it was just maybe those strange pieces of art, The conspiracy theories probably wouldn't have taken as much flight (laughs) as they actually have. But there's even more to Denver International Airport that we're going to be getting into in our next episode. Most importantly, the capstone, which uh, the carved granite piece of a time capsule that, again, is is has been brought to us by the Illuminati and could signify. Uh, our own destruction that on our next episode.
0: Thank you again, dear listeners for listening to the mad scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell joined by my co-host Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at the at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistpod or at team giant squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm -hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it.
1: We love doing that.
0: We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo! And our sound design is done by
1: Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Now,
0: Denver, Inlet, Dem, De, now. I think actually my favorite, I guess, colla- like con- connect, collection of the conspiracy.
1: <sighs>
0: Let's try again. <laughs> God damn it.